David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how was Joab doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king to the king, then if the king anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerusheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Father, this is surely a grievous passage to see David full of so much promise, such an anointing on him fall. Why has this happened? 
Lord, speak to us this morning. And I pray that our hearts would be receptive. These are hard, dark things to consider. So give us humility. Give us grace. Oh, Lord, may grace abound in this room this morning. I pray that you would use me in all of my frailty to speak. In Christ's name, amen. As I said last week, as Steve Covell said the week before, 2 Samuel 7 was the pinnacle of David's life, the delivering of the Davidic covenant, as we call it, where God made very great promises to David. And most prominent of all these promises was that a descendant would come from David who would reign over an everlasting kingdom, a glorious anointed one, one, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He was coming from David. You can imagine the, the thrill that that must have been to hear those words from Yahweh. But from the heights of that Davidic covenant, the trajectory of David's life begins to taper. We saw it happen when he brought the ark to Jerusalem. And now in 2 Samuel 11, David's trajectory dramatically careens off of a cliff and crashes into violent lawlessness. An unbelievable fall. The story of David and Bathsheba is likely the most famous story of David's life after David and Goliath. So Israel's greatest king, this man after God's own heart, his legacy is forever marked by 2 Samuel 11 and his fall into sin and disgrace. Well, what we want to do today as we look at chapter 11 is unpack the events that are happening there try to see some of the motivations and what's going on behind the scenes. And we will see that though David does prefigure Jesus, not so much today. Instead, he's a mirror into our own hearts. Here, David is helping us see ourselves, one another. Now, a disclaimer, if it isn't obvious, today we're going to be covering some very mature content so if you want to protect innocent ears, this is your warning. Last week I mentioned chapters 9 through 20 in 2 Samuel focus in on David's royal court, sort of what's going on in his inner circle, the dynamics within his chaotic family, dynamics that will become chaotic after this passage, after David and Bathsheba. But it all starts, <laughs> chapter 11 starts peacefully enough. The chill and the mud of the rainy season has now given way to a hot, dry spring. And with spring dawns new hopes of growing crops and a growing kingdom. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. 
Kings went to war in late spring because everything was drying out and their armies wouldn't get bogged down on muddy roads and the chariots wouldn't tear everything up. It was also before the season of harvest. And at harvest time, all the men, all the soldiers had to be at home tending to their crops. There's no such thing as professional soldiers at this point in history. The Romans really institutionalized that. So David had been fighting against the Ammonites for a long time, and we've read a number of accounts now where David fought against the Ammonites, and Saul and Israel were fighting against the Ammonites before that. And David, in his youth, he was very victorious against the Ammonites, and he subdued them in the south and in the west, and they had been dealt with. But there are Ammonites now in the north and the east, across the Jordan River. And so... In chapter 10, the one right before this one, David had scored a major victory against these trans-Jordan Ammonites. I mean, he, Israel, whooped them. And though he was victorious in that massive battle, these Ammonites were yet to be fully subdued across the Jordan River. They were still over there and able to thrive, and always as they were thriving, they would be a threat to David. So chapter 11 begins with David sending Israel's army under the command of Joab to strike at the Ammonite heart, to hit them in their capital and subdue them, conquer them. But, verse 1 ends, David remained at Jerusalem. Does that strike you as strange? This is not where he's supposed to be. He's lost sight of his royal duty. He's lost sight of what the people wanted from their king, which we saw back in 1 Samuel 8. There shall be a king over us, the people demanded, that we may be like all the nations and that our king may go out before us and fight our battles. But David remained in Jerusalem. He's not the warrior that he once was. He's not this hard fast, conquering man of attack, he's now growing soft. He's getting comfortable now with his new power and the ease that it brings to him. And you see, this isn't the first time that David has stayed home from battle. In chapter 10, I'd said he, Israel defeated the Ammonites. It was Joab who took Israel's army out and defeated the Ammonites. David only shows up after victory and glory is inevitable. think what we're seeing there is embedded within human history. The corrupt, the powerful transfer their risk to those who are already vulnerable. The wealthy live in security unconcerned with the calamities of the poor. The lowly endure hell's torments so the lofty can enjoy heaven's pleasures. This is the way of the world, this upside-down kingdom in which we live. And it looked like David would be a king of a different sort. I mean, all the hope of a nation was wrapped up in this in this king. But sadly, we see in chapter 11, he was not. He was not a king of a different sort. For while the soldiers endured the, the hell of war, David feasts on the pleasures in his palace. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. An afternoon nap, not uncommon during the heat of the late spring, 
but it contrasts David's luxury with, the, with that which his soldiers were enduring out in the elements. It also gives us something I think that we can relate to. We all know that feeling of waking up after a nap and being a bit groggy, not having your mind fully there yet. David's probably up on that roof trying to shake off this grogginess from his nap. And I think we know from experience it's when you're tired that your mind is sluggish, that you are the most vulnerable to temptation, that self-control is at its weakest. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city, broken into and left without walls. A city is about to crumble. Because from his palace roof, there David sees a woman bathing. And the only thing that we ever learn about Bathsheba, about her characteristics, her personal characteristics, is that she was very beautiful. And though it says she was bathing, it doesn't mean that she was naked necessarily. She may have been using a basin and washing somewhat discreetly. We don't know. It doesn't say she was unclothed. But what we do know that this wasn't a normal bath. You see in verse 4, it says she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. So according to Mosaic law, women were unclean during menstruation. And as Leviticus 15 instructs, a woman would would count seven days from the, time, from the beginning of their cycle, and on the eighth day, she would undergo a ceremonial cleansing. First, she would wash herself, and then she would go to a priest and, and make sacrifices. And it's this first part, the washing, that David observes the woman doing. So she may not have been naked, but... Her beauty was obvious to David, and he gets suddenly hungry. And he didn't look to his three wives who were downstairs somewhere in the palace. And he didn't look to Yahweh, who he has so ardently proclaimed to be his sole satisfaction. No, on this lazy afternoon, he continues to look across rooftops. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David calls a servant and essentially asks, What's her name? It's a dangerous thing when lust grips your heart and you ask, What is her name? And a sequence of events are underway here that are not unique to David. It might not lead to another woman in your bed as it does with David, but it might lead to a woman on your screen. I've said this before from the pulpit. I'll say it again. If a man tells me that he's never struggled with porn, I don't believe him. I know there are exceptions, but the nature of an exception is that they are exceedingly rare. I know also that a staggering, growing number of women are likewise affected by this temptation. And I'm under no illusion that many here, men and women, know exactly what's going on in David's heart right now. 
And I know that right now you probably feel rather uncomfortable because you know. You know that even though we are in the church, we are not safe from this temptation. Here's David in Israel's palace, not safe from this temptation. And so when David was told who the woman was, Bathsheba, he was also told to whom she belonged. She's Eliam's daughter. She's Uriah's wife. She's not an object. She's a wife. She's a daughter. And even more, we see in, in 2 Samuel chapter 23 that both Eliam and Uriah the Hittite are listed among David's mighty men. Right? Of all Israel, these two mighty men were counted among Israel's 37 best warriors, the, the top elite fighting force. And they had been fighting alongside David since way before he was a king, since back, at least back in the time when David was exiled with the Philistines, maybe even further back. Do you remember there were, there were 400 men that were following him around originally after he fled from Saul? Eliam and Uriah could have been among them. They were some of David's most loyal, most trusted men, which is why, it, which is why they live so close to David, that Bathsheba is essentially his neighbor. Right there in verse 3 is the only time that the name Bathsheba is used, that she is called by name. Every other time she is called the woman or the wife of Uriah. And I think this is, shows us that once a temptation gains foothold, it blinds. David is blind to the personhood of Bathsheba. She is blind to the deep loyalty of his friends, and he is blind to the God who watches. All he can see is the woman. And perhaps you know what it's like to be blind. Verse 4 says, So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Then she returned to her house. David is, and he has always been a man of action, and so he doesn't hesitate. That's glorious when he's following God, and it is terrible when he is following a heart gripped by lust. And look at the action words that describe David here. He looked, he inquired, he sent for, which could also be translated reached. He took, he lay, looked, inquired, reached, took, lay. There's no hint of caring in David's actions. There's no conversation. There's only taking. David has become the king that Samuel had warned about. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the kind of king that takes power or, or takes for himself by his power. David took the woman and he slept with her. And then without any indication of how Bathsheba feels in all of this, she returns home. He probably thought in this moment that everything would return to normal. She returned home, life will return to normal. But the darkness that David thought was hidden 
God was about to bring it into the light. God always brings his children into the light, even if it hurts. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. There's an irony in those first few words. The woman, object, conceived. The woman is not an object. Objects can't conceive. The woman is not just a daughter and a wife now. Now she's also a mother. Those words, I am pregnant, probably fell on David like a great millstone. And his hopes of hidden sin were now shattered. A few moments of pleasure mutated into the terror of being exposed, of being found out, of losing everything. And you just see it. Fear grips his heart now. Perhaps you know the feeling. But always a man of action... David begins to conspire, and he shamelessly plunges himself deeper into the darkness. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab said, sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house And there followed him a present from the king. So ever the loyal servant and friend, Uriah leaves his battle obligations to answer David's summons. And there's something in the Hebrew that the English doesn't reveal very well for us. When David asks Uriah how everything's going in in Rabbah, he uses the word shalom, that Hebrew word for peace and success. So he's saying, is there shalom with Joab? Is there shalom with the people? Is there shalom with the war? And the sad irony is that there is no shalom in David's own heart. No, there's the opposite dwelling there. There's malice. There's deceit. There's hypocrisy. There's envy. There's fear. And you see how the darkness plunges you deeper into the darkness. Have you ever been plunged further into the darkness because of your own darkness? During this period of history, it appears that the word feet was a common euphemism for male genitalia. And so when David says, go down to your house and wash your feet... This is crass banter between war buddies. David is looking Uriah in the eye, having slept with his wife, and he feigns friendship. Maybe you have covered your tracks, like David is covering his tracks. Have you pretended that everything was fine? Meanwhile, there's a cancer eating at your heart, a darkness that's growing, that's building. Have you concealed, are you concealing the dread that soon everything will be discovered? 
Scholars debate over the two possible motivations that David was trying to manipulate Uriah to go to his wife. The first reason is straightforward. It seems simple. Uriah spends the night with Bathsheba. That unborn baby can now be attributed to her husband and not some mysterious man. The adultery can be concealed. But the other motivation, possible motivation, is far more nefarious. And it makes a lot of sense. Mosaic law indicates that a man who sleeps with a woman was unclean. You see this in Deuteronomy 23.10 in Exodus 19.15. And it's why all the, way, all the way back in 1 Samuel 21, when David approaches the tabernacle at Nob and he asks for some food, he was given that food on one condition. That he and his men have kept themselves from women. It indicates that having abstained sexually, they were ceremonially clean. Now in a time of war, if a man became unclean, they had to leave the military camp. They had to go off by themselves, spend a designated amount of time until they could go through the process of becoming clean again. So you can imagine, when every soldier was needed, this creates a serious problem. Right? It thins out their ranks if they're not abstaining. Therefore, tradition arises in Israel's military. If you willfully make yourself unclean, like by being with a woman, it could be a capital offense. You jeopardize the whole army. By encouraging Uriah to be with his wife, some see in David's motivation a dark intent. For if Uriah made himself unclean with Bathsheba, then he would have legal precedent to execute him. And he could take for himself Bathsheba and the unborn son, and he would never have to compromise again. It would be his. So if that's true, he's not only abusing his power, he's attempting to manipulate the law of God. We, too, can attempt to manipulate God's law in countless ways as we try to cover our tracks, as we try to hide from the light. An example, you perform your rituals, you receive your forgiveness, and then you cheapen grace because you never pursue the true die-to-yourself repentance that Christ says comes with faith, that comes with belief. You call yourself forgiven, and you act like everything's fine. But true cleanliness, true forgiveness only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the faith that leads to action, the believe and repent kind of faith. And more on this later. Returning to Uriah, once we understand the high stakes of ceremonial cleanliness, especially for those in the military, we begin to understand Uriah's determination not to go down to his house. He will not go down to his house. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, 
Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down from your house or go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David asks that question of Uriah, why didn't you go to your house? Can you hear the concealed frustration and fear in his voice? But Uriah's response is nothing short of noble. The ark, Joab, all the soldiers, they're intense in the battlefield. They're, they're out living in the elements. How can he enjoy the pleasures of the palace while everyone else is enjoying the hardship of war? They're enduring. Also note that David has recently gotten the ark. We heard that when Josiah preached from chapter 6. The ark hadn't been brought into battle, to Israel's battle, in decades. And it hadn't been brought into battle in any meaningful way, and certainly not in any successful way, probably since the time of Joshua. So what David is doing here is revolutionary almost in this age of Israel's history. It's great. Additionally, the presence of the ark in the mili- with the military, it only further emphasizes the army's need to be consecrated, to be clean. Now with all this, with all this, how could I'm, again, his, his virtue, as he makes an oath twice on David's life, as you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What does that shout out, of the, shout out of the text at you? Uriah is loyal to David. He loves David. He's totally committed, and he has no idea what David has done. He has no idea what David's about to do. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him. And he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So once more David tries to manipulate Uriah into going home. And this time Uriah does make some compromises, things he said he wouldn't do, right? He eats, he drinks, he parties it up with David. The wine is flowing. Seemingly David makes it look like he's drinking too. But he's not. He's making sure Uriah's drinking. And he's scheming and he's hoping that in his drunken stupor he will stumble his way down to his wife's house, to his house. But Uriah did not go down to his house. And I think you see again from behind the scenes the hand of God quietly guiding the events of chapter 11. Foiled, David's darkness gets darker, and now he pulls in his bulldog. Verse 14, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw, him back, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper mill cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. This is a conspiracy at the highest level. Corruption, injustice is spreading from Israel's throne. Conversely, Uriah is totally loyal to David and to Joab, and he has no reason to suspect betrayal. He has no reason to think that he is delivering his death sentence to Joab. David wants Joab to put Uriah in the worst fighting, pull everyone else back, and then let Uriah be slain. Seems like a simple plan. But Joab knows that's a stupid move. If he does that, and if his other soldiers see that, they're not going to trust him anymore. That'll kill the morale of the army. So Joab doesn't question, he doesn't question the king's motivations for wanting to see Uriah dead. He questions the king's tactics. That's dark. Joab is truly David's Boab, uh, bulldog. He is David's hatchet man. So instead of David's plan, Joab instigates a skirmish with the Ammonites. Somehow he draws them out of the city so that they will attack. And then he sends in Uriah and a number of other soldiers to push that Ammonite attack back, attack and counterattack. And as they do this, as they are pushing the Ammonites back to the city walls, he knows that they will get too close to the city walls. He knows that they will come within range of the archers. Sure enough, Uriah and his company fight their way to Rabbah's walls. They find themselves exposed to the archers. They're so exposed that women dropping millstones could kill them. Uriah and an unnamed, unnumbered company of soldiers perish at the base of Rabbah's wall. Joab knows that David's not going to be happy with this tactic because it's not a good plan. Have a bunch of your soldiers get killed needlessly like this. But he knows that David will be calmed when he hears of who else has died. See how dark that's getting? David and Joab have not just killed Uriah. They've killed a collection of Israel's sons. Collateral damage, acceptable collateral damage to cover up the sin of adultery. How much blood? Sin devours. Sin always devours. It devours in David's heart, in David's kingdom. It devours in your heart. It devours in your life. And there's collateral damage. So 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him, sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servant from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So David listens to this battlefield report, but you know he's listening for one single detail. He wants to hear of a life destroyed. And he hears it. His mighty man has fallen. Uriah is dead. And so is the fear. So is the dread that adultery can remain concealed. His position need not be compromised. He can go on comfortably taking, and he can take Bathsheba, and he can take this unborn child. Look what he says to Joab in verse 25. Do not let this matter displease you. The Hebrew literally reads, Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. David's effectively saying, Don't feel guilty, Joab. We didn't do anything wrong. We did no evil. People die all the time in war. Uriah lived by the sword. He died by the sword. But David knew better. Uriah died in battle because he was slain by the king's dark conspiracy. And Yahweh knew better. And you know better. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Once again, she's not Bathsheba. She's not her own person. She's the wife of Uriah. Even after David marries her, she will always be known as the wife of Uriah. And even in Christ's lineage, she is known as the wife of Uriah from Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David stripped her of her personhood. It's a metaphor. He took what was not his to take another man's wife, and in so doing, he deceived, and he conspired, and he murdered, and he tried to cover his sins with more darkness, and then he claimed that what he was doing wasn't evil. Yet all was exposed and naked before the all-seeing eye of Yahweh, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, or in more literally translated, the thing that David had done was evil in the Lord's sight. Proverbs 16.2 All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. 
David's fall into sin and disgrace is foreign to none of us, whether it be by lust or some other persistent sin. And we are only held from the deepest darkness of David's sins purely by the grace of God. And if his hand would not restrain you, you would plunge yourself into this darkness, this eternal abyss. But for the grace of God, but for the grace of our king, for our king is not David, praise God. There is no darkness that flows from his throne. There is only coming from Jesus. There is only light and hope and forgiveness and mercy. Our king is not like David who uses his power for personal gain. Rather, our king emptied himself of his glory and he took on the form of a servant and he stepped down from his glory and from his power and he entered into our disgrace and into our weakness, taking on the frailty of humanity. And he resisted entirely all the temptations that are common to man. Every affliction of temptation you've ever known, he has resisted. And he lived in perfect righteousness. Our uncleanliness never stained him. Then, like a pure, spotless lamb, he died in our place. He plunged himself into our darkness, not doing the darkness but absorbing it, the righteous for the unrighteous, the clean for the unclean. And now he summons all of us, no matter our lusts or our deceit or our hypocrisies or our, our hatefulness, he summons all of us to himself and offers us his cleanliness and his righteousness. And he says, be clean, be forgiven. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so you need not fear the exposing light of Jesus Christ. He does not condemn you. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? No, though it might feel like you are dying by bringing him your sins, by exposing them to the light, he will not condemn. He will wash you white as snow. He will separate you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. And all that will be left then once your sins have been removed, once condemnation is no longer attached to you, all that will be left is the unfiltered, undeserved love of God lavished upon you. For every age to come, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then the, then the love of God is for you and you are free. John eight thirty six. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You are free by love. Love breaks the, sin, the, the chains of sin. You aren't ensnared anymore. You are not in bondage anymore. And so when temptation arises, we don't look to 
for the temporary gratification of that temptation, but we look to Christ who has released us from such temptations, and he's released us by spilling his own blood, the precious blood of Christ, such a great price paid for your freedom. Don't cheapen it. Look to Jesus Christ, your Lord, crucified, risen, reigning, ready to rescue you from temptation's grip. And he is not ashamed. He is not surprised by your sins, by your temptation. He is there, ready, eager to help you in a time of need. And you might know someone. Maybe you're married to someone who's yet to shake the chains of lust. I haven't fully emerged from the darkness yet, whatever the sin might be. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Christ has given you grace, and he calls you to give grace. Indeed, let us never become comfortable with sin. Let's not allow the people around us to become comfortable with sin. That would be sinful. But it is by grace you have been saved. Not by doing better, not by pulling yourself up by your, bull, but by your bootstraps, not by engaging in some rigorous process of behavior modification. No. What your loved one needs and what you need is for the righteousness of the king to touch your heart. By grace you have been saved through faith. Let it fill your heart with transformation, with peace, with love, with joy, with righteousness. Jesus is so much greater than David. And he doesn't consent like sinful David. You are like sinful David. James writes, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Come into the light as he is in the light. Though in your sins you are a wretch, he delights to save, to exalt, to give you eternal life. Let me finish with this glorious passage from Paul's letter to Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By grace you have been saved. Father, we thank you for this passage, dark and sorrowful as it is. Though it reminds us of our own darkness, 
We're grateful because it helps us to remember how great your mercy and that you entered into the blackest darkness and rescued each one of us from it. Oh, Father, fill our hearts with faith in this, that we would believe it, that we are rescued, and such belief, such love from you would break the chains that ensnare us, that we would walk in repentance in the light of a new day. This transformation, it's like new creation. Create us anew, Father. Sanctify us. Pour out your amazing grace on us. And I pray that you would give sight to our blind eyes. In Christ's name, amen.